Welcome to Impact AI, the podcast for startups who want to create a better future through the use of machine learning. I'm your host, Heather Couture. Today I'm joined by guest Dean Freestone, co-founder and CEO of SEER, to talk about diagnosis and management of epilepsy. Dean, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks, Heather. Great to be here. Dean, could you share a bit about your background and how that led you to create SEER? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I've been lucky enough to work in the R&D space around epilepsy for nearly 20 years. And prior to starting SEER, I was quite fortunate to work on some research topics that ended up making its way out of the lab, out into the real world. And the first of those was the world's first fully implantable, always-on recording system that was implanted in the human brains of 15 people for the purposes of forecasting their seizures. Uh, one of the things we learned from this particular device and the vast amounts of data that it generated was that, that there was no way that a human was able to keep up with uh, these streams of data to be able to convert it from this raw data into clinical insights. And so from that work, I quickly realized that we really need some sort of computer vision or AI-based system to be able to interpret the data in order to bring these types of systems to life. Uh, the second uh, innovation, I guess, that I worked on was more so in the uh, machine learning computer vision space when I was working as a Fulbright postdoc fellow at Columbia University. That was around 2014, 2015. And that's really where computer vision started to become as good as human vision in some of these contests. And I realized at this point that the convergence of these technologies was really important for healthcare. And so that led me to start here with my co-founders because I realized that it was time to bring this out of the research world and to real life to make the most impact. So what does SEER do? And why is this important for improving healthcare? Yeah, look, so SEER is a vertically integrated medical technology company. We specialize in home clinical monitoring with a special focus on helping people with seizures and blackouts and attacks, I guess, related to epilepsy. Um, now, traditionally, the gold standard epilepsy diagnostic procedure would be monitoring somebody in a hospital environment. And that's because seizures can be pretty rare events and we need to monitor people for extended periods of time to try and catch them out and do a differential diagnosis. Um, now there's lots of challenges in doing that type of monitoring because it clogs up hospital beds and it's very expensive and only academic centers tend to offer it because of the expertise required. And at SEER, what we've been able to do is use technology to be able to break this type of monitoring free from the hospital environment and deliver it in the home. Now, I think it's important for probably three main reasons. The first and the most important is that there's a tremendous unmet need in the community for people with seizure disorders. The misdiagnosis rate for epilepsy is sitting up at around 30%. It's really terrible. And a lot of people are getting uh, diagnosed with epilepsy and it turns out they actually have cardiac disorders or psychiatric problems and, and other things as well. And then at the other end of things, about 30% of people with epilepsy never get full control of their seizures. So they continue to have these attacks and they're quite unpredictable uh, despite the best of medical care. And we believe that um, switching healthcare to a more data orientated approach has an enormous opportunity to help these people. Now, in order to do this well in the home environment, we need to work on the technology stack. And so that involves computing at the edge. So we're talking about wearable devices, mobile networks, cloud computing and AI, and bringing these things all together to create 
really large infrastructure to be able to support getting data from the home environment to the people who need to see it in the clinical environments. And look, in home healthcare is relatively new. I know that there's a lot of systems that are trying to um, reorientate their hospitals and break it free from bricks and mortar to more platform-like institutions. And so at CIA, we really think about how do we innovate with the healthcare system, not just with the technology itself. Um, and that means that we can control data, we control workflows, and we can reinvent the healthcare system. So what role does machine learning play in all that? Well, machine learning is critically important. Um, and it's, and I think epilepsy and these episodic disorders like epilepsy is uh, really benefits from machine learning and maybe the most out of any particular condition. And that's because seizures can be quite episodic, as I said before, and a little bit intermittent. And that means that the symptoms that we need to uh, record and examine can be like looking for a needle in a haystack. And so it's, it can be very labor intensive for somebody to read the data. And if we can use machine learning to try and just reduce the data or, or, or edit it down to something like a highlight reel, it means that we can be a lot more efficient, a lot more accurate and effective, and we can scale up our systems so that we can provide access at a, at a much, um, uh, make it more, more accessible to folks that wouldn't normally get it. Um, and so that's that's extremely important. But then in other neurological disorders as well, where it's very hard to assess the effectiveness of medications or other treatments. And I think there's a role to play for machine learning there as well, where we can start thinking about phenotyping people, which is more of an unsupervised machine learning approach uh, and building recommender systems to be able to prescribe the most appropriate therapies. So it sounds like the latter part is maybe a phase two and the first part of identifying the rare and episodic events is the first phase that um, you've been tackling so far? Yeah, that's right. That's right. So at, at first, you know, we really focused on um, the lowest fruit um, and tried to make one step. Um, I, I see lots of other uh, companies in our ecosystem really trying to go for the Hail Mary sort of um, these approaches. And But for us at C, we really tried to just make incremental steps to be able to open up access. And so the machine learning that we use to read EG data is uh, effectively supervised machine learning approaches where we started off with a very large data set and we were able to you know, train some deep convolutional neural networks to be able to recognize patterns that are associated with epilepsy. And then we could use that to uh, create that those highlight reels that I was talking about. Does the rare nature of these events bring any new challenges for, for training that type of supervised model? It does, it does. And it creates all kinds of uh, biases, I guess. And I think uh, our area has been held back somewhat and there's been a lot of false starts because of the imbalance between the different classes of data we need to look at. Uh, every single day I see a new publication coming out through the academic literature talking about the performance of computer vision and reading EG data. And just about always they used uh, balanced data sets. And in, the, in reality, in real life, the training sets are anything but balanced. And so it's very hard to assess the performance of these algorithms once they've, they're deployed out into a real clinical environment. And... It means that we need vast amounts of data as well to be able to get to a, a level of performance that's starting to get to and surpass human level. And 
so I think that's one of the most important things that we realized at SEER was that we really do need huge amounts of data. And that means that we need to control the workflows and own the data that comes through our systems. And that's one of the reasons why we're completely vertically integrated. So we not only build the technologies, but we also run our own clinical services. And that enables us to generate insights for doctors, but also to build a data set with each patient that we serve and we get better and better and better as time goes on. So I imagine you are gathering huge amounts of data there and you said you're, you're training supervised models. How, how do you mm -hmm. annotate that quantity of data? Yeah, well, I think this is the sweet spot. And uh, in terms of what we do at SEER with the vertical integration, um, so what we do for our clinical service delivery is actually ask our clinical teams to annotate our data that's both appropriate for clinical decision-making also curates the data so it's fuel for our machine learning engine and that means that uh, we get to build up a curated data set at an unprecedented scale and just to give you an idea of scale here um, at SIA in Australia we monitor more patients for epilepsy than every hospital in Australia combined together and then tripled and so we have this enormous data flow which we control and then we make sure that our clinical teams are aware of what we need to do on a machine learning front and it gives us an enormous competitive advantage and i think this is what probably one of the the most important areas and like a holy grail if you like for ai and machine learning and healthcare is to make sure that we have the right data and it's curated in the right way so we can use the structure within that and capture the medical expertise and codify that and then redeploy that in an accessible way. Let's talk about the deployment side for a minute. How do you ensure that this, this technology you're developing will fit in with the clinical workflow and provide the right kind of assistance to doctors and patients? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's a great question. And look, um, it, like prior to starting Sierra, I was working as a researcher. Um, mostly based within a hospital environment. And I was creating, uh, I guess, you, developing machine learning approaches to read EEG data for about 10 years. And I would go into the technician's rooms and I would sit down with them and we would work together on trying to speed up the process for annotating EEG data, particularly for patients that were in the wards because we wanted to get them out as quickly as possible. And... That was great. Everybody loved it. Uh, we worked together really well. But the thing was, the second I left that room, nobody would use the algorithms. And it became apparent to me that without me being there, they just didn't trust it. They didn't know how to use it. It added an extra degree of risk and added um, a small degree of time to get over that learning curve to understand what was happening. And so when we started here, uh, we had banked on this insight. And instead of trying to I guess, push our technology out for um, external people to use in the clinical world. We took the approach, how about if you guys send your patients our way and we'll take care of the heavy lifting in terms of using the technologies. Um, and so we're able to do that. And again, with epilepsy, it was just like one of these perfect conditions where a home healthcare model really suits things. And, and that enabled us to break it free from hospital so we can control the workflows and the data. Um, 
And it's also an area of healthcare as well, where reimbursement was already existing for ambulatory studies. So we were able to structure our business model exactly around this problem of being able to control those workflows. And the inputs from a referring doctor is no different than what they would normally do. And the outputs, uh, what they get back in terms of clinical reports and access to label data is exactly the same. But the bits in the middle in terms of how we collect the data and how we translate that data to clinical insight is vastly different. And what we've done is make that bit really scalable. So I want to talk a, a bit about the, more about the machine learning models themselves and how they're developed. From what I've seen, machine learning models are most effective when they're developed with an understanding of the underlying data. How do your machine learning developers collaborate with the domain experts to, to get that understanding? Yeah, look, I think it's really interesting when um, with different types of data, um, when you sort of, when we think about this topic, um, some types of data, I was saying some clinical approaches when, when examining the data can be described pretty well, um, like in terms of like a system or, a, you know, formulaic approach um, where there's specific features within the data that people are looking for. Um, I think that's true largely with ECG signals, for example, or, you know, when you're trying to spot an abnormality, um, maybe in dermatology or in some imaging. But when it comes to EEG, there is these patterns that um, doctors did, can't really describe themselves in terms of what makes them abnormal. Um, and so there's a lot of heuristics that doctors use. And so that makes it very, very difficult to just sort of sit down with a with an expert in reading EEG and just write down the formula uh, that they take in terms of reading the data. Uh, and but nevertheless, uh, like a sort of a fe- like a feature engineered type approach has probably been the mainstay in automated EEG analysis for a long time. Uh, and I think one of the biggest challenges is just simply having enough data to be able to move to an approach where you don't have to worry so much about the feature engineering. And at SEER, we've managed to break through that barrier uh, by controlling the clinical service itself and building up such a massive data set. And so earlier on, we were certainly um, trying to tailor features to to some heuristics that doctors would mention. Uh, But now we've reached a level where we're using um, uh, just raw data being fed into the machine learning algorithms and that uh, the performance of that way outperforms anything else we're able to do. And so that's that's a transition we were able to make, uh, but it wasn't easy and it actually took, took us years from collecting vast amounts of data and curating it very carefully. The other important contribution I've seen from the collaboration between machine learning experts and domain experts is the domain experts understand the variability in the data, the patient-to-patient variability, mm-hmm. the device-to-device variability, and maybe within different subgroups of the population as well. Is that an important aspect for for, uh, how you develop models and how you um, think about them and validate them? Yeah, look, I think that's that's critically important. Um, And I think it's going to be, obviously, it's going to become more and more important as technologies mature and they're deployed deployed, um, more broadly. Uh, And I think there's no avoiding it when we start to take humans out of the loop in clinical decision-making. We really need to make sure that we understand if an algorithm is going to perform better on a particular subpopulation of the um, of the market that we're serving, um, whether it be uh, sex or age or race, ethnicity, all of these types of things. We need to be really careful about it. 
you know, right now though, we're, we've reached a level of performance that is more of an assistive technology where we always have a person that's looking through the data. And our approach is to use machine learning to make the job faster and create these highlight reels. And then a human will inspect that data and try their best to answer the clinical question using the highlight reel. And if it turns out that the clinical question can't be answered, then we need to dig deeper into the data and sometimes go back to the old ways. Uh, on average, it, it, it improves things dramatically, uh, but sometimes it doesn't, but absolutely for sure. And I think one of the big challenges as well in healthcare and using machine learning is often we don't have a ground truth. Um, that's certainly true in epilepsy. And when you ask an expert panel of people to read in and label EEG data, often their inter-reviewer agreement is quite low. And so we have to work through the challenges of how we deal with this. And um, just to give you an example, one of the first generations of algorithms that we deployed, uh, it didn't perform as well as we'd like uh, with a validation data set. And so, but then we started to realize that some of the positive examples popping out, we thought ourselves that they were actually true. And so we asked the team that originally curated that data to go back and check it again. And we actually discovered, you know, thousands of new events that they had missed simply probably due to fatigue and labeling the data, but they turned out to be, you know, definitely positive cases. And so in this instance, um, the, the data that we were training on was actually not accurate. And so we've certainly got to work out how we overcome biases and make sure that we're serving our populations the way we want to. But we're also going to work out how do we actually overcome biases in the medical profession itself um, as they give us the data that we're supposed to be learning from. Yeah, bias is definitely one of the, the big concerns with, with AI right now. With the neurological data in particular, what are the some of the other ways that bias can manifest? Yeah, with well, look, I, I think that um, there's there's a lot of different levels in terms of the way biases can manifest itself, um, and it it could simply be in terms of um, patients who get access to the. Um, this type of monitoring in the first place. And so often these new technologies first get deployed in, in urban areas with large academic institutions um, in the largely Western world, you know, in the, here in the US uh, and where I'm from in Australia and the UK. But then you, you've got to start to think about, right, so we want these systems to scale up globally and build, you know, planetary scale infrastructure for healthcare. How is that going to translate to you know, people living in Africa or India or you know other areas around the world where we really do need to um, help these people, and this is where the technology offers probably the greatest benefit. And so we need to think really carefully about that. And you know these are challenges that are going to be increasingly we're going to face. And look, you know I don't have any great answers for it right now, but one thing is that already what we're able to do is to be able to provide access to people like within our, I guess, um, within the regions where we can serve people. And we need to make sure we do a really good job of that now and then think about these problems as things develop into the future. 
Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. Awareness is the first step. Awareness that there can be bias, how that bias might manifest. Understanding how bias can come up and affect your models. The second step is, is really figuring out how to deal with it. And that's not an easy challenge. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And um, I think there's a lot of parallels with autonomous driving. And it's really interesting to see that, you know, you know the, the rate of incidents with autonomous vehicles may be lower than what they would be with a person at the helm of a car. But still, any incident is just absolutely unacceptable. And I think about this a lot um, and the parallels to healthcare. And I think that already we can outperform the standard the standard medical system in a lot of cases, uh, but still any incident when we're using AI in healthcare is, is still unacceptable. And perhaps one of the reasons why this is the case is that when a person is at the helm, it's considered an accident. And when, a, when an AI or a, an algorithm is at the helm, it's considered a systematic bias within the, within the procedure and that's unacceptable. And so we need to be really conscious of that. That's a, a good uh, comparison. Is there any advice you could offer to other leaders of AI-powered startups? Yeah, look, I think that um, it's a really tough area. Um, when we started here, we wanted to create a cloud-based platform that a lot of other companies could use. Um, so they could build their own devices and they could connect their devices to our, our infrastructure. And that way, um, we could accelerate a lot of other companies getting to market. And it turned out, we realized this quite quickly, was that um, there's a lot of unknown value in data and these systems. And most startups wanted to keep all of this in-house. Um, now, a lot of the companies that we're dealing with early on no longer exist. And that's because they tried to do uh, too much too quickly uh, and underestimated the costs of building this type of infrastructure. Um, and so probably the the biggest piece of advice I would give to anyone starting up right now is absolutely do not underestimate the cost um, and the amount of work it's gonna take. It's not your typical sort of SaaS world or um, you know social networks and things like that. Healthcare is a lot more rigorous. It takes a lot more capital, a lot more time and a lot more people to do it well and do, do it in a safe and secure way and get all the regulatory compliances that we need. And so do not, absolutely do not under finance. Um, that's, that's one thing in particular. But then on the other side as well, I would um, really sort of tail, tailor what you do to areas in healthcare where there's already established reimbursement systems. Um, if you're able to do that and you have a strong business model, it makes life so much easier. Um, and then um, then that doesn't mean you can't use that as a springboard to go into other areas. Um, so any way possible, I would recommend people just to make your life as easy as you can uh, and then create a foundation that you can build on to change the system and you know innovate further into the future. Great. And finally, where do you see the impact of SEER in three to five years? Yeah, well, and so I think... Yeah, impact can be measured in, in lots of different ways. Um, at at SEER, um, we're certainly helping a lot of people. And so in, in across Australia, we've already helped more than 12,000 people uh, get access to healthcare that wouldn't normally be able to get access. Uh, and we hope to be able to reproduce that. Now, um, we're setting up our business here in the US and we're also um, setting up over in the UK 
uh, here in the US, about 75% of people with epilepsy get their first treatment from a primary care physician, not a specialist neurologist. And so what we want to be able to do um, is help those primary care physicians perform at a level you know, of a Mayo Clinic neurologist. Um, and that means that most people will be able to get access to gold standard care and get answers sooner. Uh, this, the current state of care is that most people don't get control of their epilepsy after their first seizure until over five years. And what we want to be able to do at SEER is reduce that five years down to just a couple of weeks. Um, now, in order to do that across the globe, across the entire planet, we need to build some pretty big infrastructure in the cloud. And so that's going to take a lot of innovation. And we need to think really big to do this. Um, but one of the great things about epilepsy is that we need to monitor brain signals, heart signals, lots of behavioral signals. And so the infrastructure that we can create will translate across to lots of other conditions like cardiac abnormalities, sleep abnormalities, and many more. Um, and so we hope, hope to be at a point in around three to five years where we can start branching out beyond epilepsy and thinking about these other indications um, and then even more broadly into the future. I think the vast amounts of data that we collect as well will unlock a bunch of new ideas where we can start thinking about more data-orientated decisions more broadly in treatment um, and helping manage patients get to control sooner. This has been great. Dean, you and your team have taken a really interesting and powerful approach to diagnosing epilepsy and hopefully many other conditions in the future. Where can people find out more about you online? Uh, look, I would say, I just recommend people to go to our website, um, so cmmedical.com. Um, there they can find a lot about our products, um, but also a lot about our research as well. Uh, so we pride ourselves on doing lots of research and contributing back to the academic community. Uh, and also you can find us on LinkedIn. Great. Thanks for joining me today. Yeah, wonderful. Thanks, Heather. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. I'm Heather Couture, and I hope you join me again next time for Impact AI.